Good afternoon. It is good to be here with everyone. It's always a pleasure when I'm invited to come and to speak before you all. As was mentioned, this is like a second home to me. Many of you know that, and so it's always good to be back with you. If you would go on and open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking at the 51st Psalm this afternoon. Again, Psalm 51. And as you're turning there, I would like to remind you of a story that was told by Nathan the prophet to David the king. And in this story, Nathan told about two men. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. And the rich man, as you can imagine, had lots of flocks and lots of herds. But the poor man didn't have that. The poor man only had one little lamb. And this was a lamb that he purchased with his own money, and he raised this lamb, and he loved this lamb. He allowed this lamb to drink from his cup and eat from his hand and lie in his arms. In fact, it was like a daughter to him. But one day, a traveler came through and stayed at the rich man's house. And the rich man, wanting to be a good host, decided that he was going to feed the man. But instead of selecting an animal from his own flocks and his own herds, he decided that he was going to take something that didn't belong to him. He decided that he was going to take that little lamb from the poor man. And so he did. He cold-heartedly took the one thing that the man cherished so much, and he used that for that traveler. And when David heard this story, his reaction was similar to my reaction and what your reaction is. And that is, how could this man do this? How could he take something that wasn't him, that's not right, that's not just? But you see, what Nathan was doing was telling that story because it related to David, didn't it? And that's why Nathan pointedly said, David, listen. You are the rich man. This story is about you and your sins. You see, sometime earlier, David was out walking on his rooftop, and it was the time of year when they were, the kings were out to war. But for whatever reason, David didn't go. And so there he is walking on his rooftop, and he looks out, and Scripture tells us that he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And instead of taking his eyes off that woman and continuing to move on, he became fixated on that woman. And he inquired about her. And the people who came back, after, who he inquired to, they said, well, listen, isn't that Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And Uriah, you understand, was a loyal man, a man who was loyal to the king, who was loyal to his nation. And David heard this information, David knew that information, yet he still decided to call for her. And so she came to him, and he involved himself in an adulterous relationship with her that resulted in the conception of a child. And that wasn't part of David's plan. And so David had to figure out, how am I going to cover this up? How can I make it look like this isn't my child, but the child of Uriah? And so what he does is he calls Uriah in and he chit-chats with him a little bit. And he says, listen, why don't you go to your house, wash your feet, enjoy your home tonight. You see, the motive behind that statement was, why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? Because really what David was trying to do was to get people to believe that the child that was in Bathsheba was Uriah's child. 
But Uriah proved himself to be more of a noble man than David, and he didn't do it. In fact, he slept at the door of the king's house that night. And so David had to think again, well, what do I do now? And so he held a feast and invited Uriah to come, and this time he got Uriah drunk, hoping now he'll go back to his home. But still, he didn't. And so David is reeling at this point, not knowing what to do. And so he determines that the only way to deal with this situation is to have Uriah killed, to get him out of the picture, and therefore he can take Bathsheba as his wife, and nobody will question the birth of that child because it was David and his wife Bathsheba's. And so sure enough, he sends Uriah to the front lines, and Uriah died. And what's amazing about all of that is just this progression of sin that just continued to snowball and escalate through that entire series of events. And so the reason that Nathan told that story to David was so that he could confront David about his sins, so that David could come face to face with the reality, the seriousness, and the gravity of those sins. Because you know, all of us are going to be in that situation too, aren't we? We all have in the past, and we all will continue to have to come face to face with our sins. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to respond like the rest of the world responds so often to sin, and they treat it lightly? And they say, ah, you know, it's not a big deal. We'll just brush that off and move on. No use stressing over that. Or are we going to respond like David responded? Are we going to respond as David did, the man after God's own heart? Because in Psalm 51, he shows us what his attitude is towards sin and what his actions were as a response to being confronted by his sin. The 51st Psalm is a psalm that was penned in response to Nathan's confrontation with David. And so this afternoon, I'd like to take a look at a few things from this psalm and some things that we can learn as to how we are to deal with sin in our lives. And so go on and look at with me at verse 1. Verse 1 of Psalm 51, it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, David does what all of us should do when we are confronted with sin. And he approaches God. And he approaches God because he knows more than anything else, he needs God. David understands that it's God who can blot out his transgressions. It's God who can wash him of his iniquities and can cleanse him of his sin. You see, sin stains the soul. And only God is the one who can get rid of that stain. It's been said that God is the only one who has the detergent strong enough to remove the stain of sin. And what's amazing about David's approach to God here in the first couple of verses is that David had already proven in the past that he was a man of God. He's already shown that he can be faithful to God. But David doesn't approach God in this situation and say, hey, God, listen, you owe me one. Think about all the times that I've been faithful to you in the past. 
think about all of the wonderful things that I've done for you. No, that's not David's approach. David doesn't approach God hoping to bank on his past spiritual success, to use those as bargaining chips with God. Because David knows the condemning nature of sin. David understands that the only thing that he can rely on for forgiveness is the love, the mercy, and the compassion of God. And so when we are confronted with our sin, we can't lean on good deeds that we have done in the past. We can't lean on good words that we have said in the past. Are those good things? Yes. Should those things be a fruit of our faith? Yes. But the nature of sin says that the only thing that can bring us forgiveness is the grace, the love, and the mercy of God. We are helpless apart from that. And in addition to his approach to God, we see that David also makes an acknowledgement to God, an acknowledgement of the sin that he has committed, and also an, an acknowledgement of who he has sinned against. In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, he has approached God because he knows that he is in desperate need of God's grace and God's mercy, but now he's acknowledging the reality of the situation. He's acknowledging that he is the one who has sinned, and he is the one who has sinned against God. And I want you to notice how he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't hold anything back. No, he humbly confesses that he knows that he is guilty of sin. And he doesn't try and justify anything. He doesn't try and spread the blame. No excuses. How easy could it have been for David to say, well, listen, God, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out there. And if she was, we wouldn't be in this mess. He didn't do that. He owned up to his own faults. You see, a lot of times, that's what we try and do. We try and spread the blame. We try and let someone else share the responsibility of our shortcomings. It's like Adam in the garden when after that he had eaten of the fruit, God came to him and basically said, Adam, what's the deal? What happened? And he says, well, you know, God, that woman that you gave me, she gave the fruit and I ate. Now, we don't spread the blame. We own up like David did. And he says that he's owning up to his sin and it's sin that is always before him. And I think that's an interesting phrase because I think it could mean so many different things. But when I think of David's sin always being before him, I can't help but think of the consequences of David's sin. In fact, if you remember, Nathan, after telling that story, prophesied that the son that was to be born to David and Bathsheba because of that relationship was going to die. Well, the knowledge of that, that consequence, was always before him. David had taken Bathsheba as his wife, and I can't help but think that so many times David would look upon Bathsheba and see pain. Pain because she had lost her husband. Pain because the child that she bore was going to be taken away from her. David's sin was always before him, 
and he could see it in the external consequences. But also, there was the internal guilt. Knowing that he had inflicted pain, knowing that he had caused pain to Bathsheba, physical pain to Uriah, emotional pain to Uriah's family. The guilt of knowing that an innocent child, his child, was to die as a consequence of his decisions. And this guilt weighed on his conscience, and I can only imagine how many sleepless nights that he had. But this is the nature of sin. Sin brings guilt. Sin brings consequences. And like David, we can get caught up in the heat of the moment. And we can fail to remember that sin so often goes beyond the sin itself. It's like throwing a, pond, a rock into a pond. Once the, pond, the rock hits the pond, it doesn't stop there. There's a ripple effect that keeps on going. And sin oftentimes has the same effect in our lives. But I believe that David reveals his greatest source of guilt when in verse 4 he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says against you and you only. David was well aware that he had sinned against Bathsheba. I believe he was well aware that he had sinned against Uriah. But being a man after God's own heart, he understood that at the end of the day, it was God who he had ultimately sinned against. Joseph understood that. If you remember in Genesis chapter 39, Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce Joseph, but instead of giving in, he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? And so the next time that we are confronted with temptation, whether it's to go somewhere we shouldn't go or to do something we shouldn't do, we need to stop and ask, how can I do this and sin against my God? There was a group of high school students who were gathered together after a football game one Friday night. And they were all talking about the party that they were getting ready to go to. And a part of that party was going to be drinking and a bunch of other things that are clearly against God's will. Well, one of the girls that was in that group was a Christian. And she was hearing about this party and they said, hey, are you going to go? She says, no, I don't think I'm going to go to that. I can't do that. And then one of the guys chimed in and in a very mocking way said, well, what's wrong? You afraid your father's going to hurt you? And she said, no. I'm afraid I'm going to hurt my father. And I think that's the mentality that we should have when thinking about sin, when confronted with temptations. Am I going to give in or am I not? And the answer is no. How could we sin against our Father in heaven? How could we grieve Him in that way? And then in verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Well, people have looked at verse 5, and they've wanted to use it as a proof text for the doctrine of original sin. Basically, the idea that we inherit our sin, we're born with sin, and it comes from our fathers and our ancestors all the way back to Adam. But I don't think that's what David's getting at at all here. And it's a shame because many of our translations actually take the word behold, which is the proper translation, 
and they actually substitute more concrete words like surely or indeed, which only bolsters that doctrine in the eyes of many people. But again, that's not what David is getting at here. Because if you go back to verse 1, you can see contextually he understands that it's his iniquity, his transgression, and his sin. He reiterates that in verse 3 when he says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What David is doing here is using hyperbole. In other words, this is an exaggerated statement that is meant to make a point. And if you go through the scripture, you'll find out that hyperbole is used many times. It's used again in the Psalms, and it's actually used by David in the Psalms. In Psalm 58, verse 3, he says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now, you and I understand that the wicked don't come out of their mother's womb and immediately start speaking lies and doing wicked things and conning people. It's hyperbole. It's basically meant to say their whole lives have been characterized by sin. Job says something similar. He makes a a, a statement like this in Job 31 verse 18 when he's describing the way he cared for orphans and widows. He said, For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb I guided the widow. Again, I think we all understand that maybe a little five-year-old Job wasn't a father to the fatherless. And that from his birth, he wasn't guiding and taking care of the widows. Again, the point is, his life was characterized by those things. And he was using an exaggerated statement to emphasize those things. And so what David is saying here in verse 5 is that I've led a life of transgression. My life has been filled with sin. And I need your mercy, God. I need your unfailing love and your compassion. That's what he's saying. And because he recognizes this, he makes a plea to God for forgiveness in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And if you were to look throughout this entire psalm, you'll see this language of this being unclean, but having a desire to be clean, undefiled, but a desire to be purified. In fact, I think this is priestly language if you look at it. Here in verse 7, there's purge, and then we also see wash and cleanse, which are words that were used in the first couple of verses. But that phrase, purged with hyssop, is a very interesting phrase. In fact, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says that the unclean, such as lepers, used to present themselves before the priest on the occasion of their purification. The priest, being satisfied that the unclean person had met the requirements for purification, would take a bunch of hyssop, which was this wild bush and they would take a branch or a twig off of it and they would use that to sprinkle the person with water symbolic of ritual cleansing here the psalmist petitions the lord to be his priest by taking the hyssop and declaring him cleansed from all sin 
David is looking to God and asking him to cleanse him, to wash him, to purge his life of sin. And he says in verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. A life lived in sin is a life that is spent separated from God. And there is no joy and there is no gladness when we are separated from God. When we are burdened with guilt, we might try to find joy and try to find gladness in other things. We might try to find joy in other places or other people. But those are just band-aids. Those are just superficial fixes. They don't last. They simply mask the real issue. Because the only way to eliminate the guilt of sin and to restore the joy and gladness that only comes from God can be found in His forgiveness. He is the one who brings healing. And David talks about that healing when he talks about these broken bones. And I think bones, these broken bones, talk about the guilt and the pain that he is experiencing because of his sin. And you think about the bones of our body. It's not skin, right? It's not surface level. He's talking about the inner part of man. He is hurt deeply. He is bearing an, an immense amount of guilt. He says something similar in Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 through 5. When he says, For when I kept silent, or when I internalized my sin, when I kept my sin from God, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David was wasting away. But then he received the forgiveness of God. And at that point, joy and gladness can be restored. And then in verse 9, he says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me with a willing spirit. And I think verse 10 really hits the nail on the head. Because there it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. You see, when we are dealing with sin, when we are dealing with the guilt of sin, what all of us need is a heart transplant. All of us need renewal transformation. And this should be our constant prayer. We should be praying to God, remove any hardness from my heart, remove deceit, remove evil, remove wickedness, and fill us with your spirit. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, it says in Paul says to the Ephesians to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness 
and holiness. We need this constant renewal. We need this transformation. We need every day to be made more perfect. And this happens through communion with God, in prayer, and through His Word. Through the Word, the the Holy Spirit-inspired Word fills us. That is how we are filled with the Spirit of God. And then when we read the words and are filled with the words, we meditate on the words, we think about spiritual thoughts, eternal thoughts. That is how our hearts are made new. And in verse 11, he says, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And I wonder, as he's writing those words, if he's thinking back on the life of Saul. And he's thinking about how Saul began so well, but he began this spiritual decline. And it says at one point that God removed his spirit from him. Is David saying, please don't let that happen to me. Don't take your spirit from me. Again, we all need to be filled with the Spirit of God in order to defeat sin and to maintain that spiritual joy and gladness that only comes from Him. And then in verse 12, there is what I believe the summary verse of the entire psalm in which He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David, in this entire psalm, is crying out for restoration. He wants to be restored to God. Again, this is Old Testament language here. In Numbers chapter 12, we learn that a person who was considered unclean would have to stay outside of the camp of Israel until until they were purified. And what that symbolized was a severed relationship, not only from the people of God, but from God himself. And so David is saying, listen, I'm outside of the camp. I need to be brought back in among God's people and among you, God. Restore me of my uncleanness. Paul's plea to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 was this. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. David understood that that reconciliation is what he needed. And so David asks for forgiveness. But I want you to notice what David says he will do as a result of this forgiveness. In verse 13, he said, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. This is David showing that he's not going to take God's forgiveness for granted. He understands, remember, that without God's forgiveness, he would be a broken mess destined for destruction. And so when he receives the forgiveness of God, he's not going to say, oh, thanks, God, and then just go his own way. No, David is going to take this forgiveness and he's going to use that as a motivation to tell others about God and about God's forgiveness. Because remember, David was able to say, hey, I was defiled. But because of God's mercy and love, now I am undefiled. I am restored. And I wonder if we are impacted like that. 
Are we impacted by God's forgiveness to the point that it motivates us to tell others about God and God's forgiveness? Think about the Apostle Paul. And you think about the, the life of sin that he lived. In fact, he was persecuting people who believed and confessed in Jesus Christ, persecuting the church. You think, well, that is just the pinnacle of sin. But yet, he was forgiven by God. And then he went on, and because of that forgiveness, he told others about who he was, but who he became because of the mercy and the love of God, the forgiveness of God. Are we impacted like that? Do we consider the fact that we were once lost? Do we consider the fact that our souls were stained with sin, but by the power of God, we have been cleansed? But also, this forgiveness is going to propel David to worship. He says in verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Again, a transformed life, a forgiven life, should motivate us to praise God. And I think if all of us would approach worship in this way, if we would all come to this building collectively and we would have in our minds who we were and who we are now because of God's love and God's mercy, think about how that could enhance our worship with each other. But not just collectively, but in your own daily life. Always remembering and being grateful for the forgiveness God gave and continues to give how that can impact our worship to God every day. And then he says in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What this series of verses is talking about is the importance of the heart. The heart is the essence of repentance. We all know that God desires our hearts. Our worship would mean nothing if our hearts were not involved. Our good deeds would be meaningless if our heart was not behind them. Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 says that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the same thing happens when it comes to repentance. God wants our hearts, not just our words. The heart is at the heart of it all. It's at the heart of David's repentance. And it should be and must be at the heart of ours. And so sin is serious. Sin is a big deal. 
Because it is sin that separates us from God. It is sin that removes His joy and His gladness from our lives. And it is sin that burdens us with guilt. And so we cannot take it lightly. And so we have to approach God. When we are confronted with sin in our life, we have to humbly go to Him. And we have to acknowledge and own up to the fact, yes, I have sinned and I have sinned against you. And I think we all need to realize the reason sin is such a big deal is because it is our sin, all of our sins, that put the beloved Son of God on the cross. Our sins led Him to Calvary. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, Isaiah writes, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Again, our shortcomings are the reason that Jesus willingly put himself on the cross. But he did that so that forgiveness could be extended to us. It's an unbelievable thing to think about. And something that I don't think we can truly wrap our minds around. And so this afternoon, if you are a Christian, but you have gone astray and are living a life of sin, and you know that you need restoration to God, go back and look at verse 12 and ask what David did. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Approach God knowing that you need that restoration and you need to be reconciled to Him. If you would like the prayers of the congregation this afternoon, we can pray with you as you ask God for repentance, or you repent and ask God for forgiveness. And if you are not a Christian, and you know that there is sin in your life and that it is keeping you from God, and I encourage you to look at verse 12 and replace the word restore with give. Give me the joy of your salvation, God. I want to become a child of yours. I want to enter into a relationship with you. So again, if you know that there is sin in your life and you're ready to repent of that and to change your ways and to move towards Him, you can confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came down from heaven, lived a life upon this earth, and put Himself on a cross for your sins. And when you confess that, you can be buried with Him in baptism, where your sins can be washed away, where your soul can be cleansed, and you can rise, a new creation. If there's anything that we can do for you this afternoon, we encourage you to come forward as together we stand and as we sing.